So the exact date of the fire was October 9th, and uh, it was midnight. It was a weird it was a weird Sunday because it was a beautiful October Sunday in Northern California. Um, it was warm, and it happened to be a special day because we were celebrating my one-year-old uh, granddaughter's birthday. Her name is Taylor, and so we were hosting it at our home. So that afternoon, we had a wonderful birthday party celebrating this precious little girl's first birthday. And the whole family was gathered there, and we had a wonderful time. And then uh, that evening, uh, we went back to church because we were doing a little special series, kind of a mini-series on some contemporary issues. And so I was speaking that evening, uh, only in California, I was speaking that night on marijuana because it had been legalized. And so I was addressing that issue, you know, how do we as Christians look at it? So we had a profitable evening together. And uh, when we went to church, still a beautiful, beautiful day. But when I came out of church, which was about 7.15, 7.20, the wind had really begun to blow. And in California, in the month of October, when the hot, dry winds blow, it's not good. As I said earlier, California dries up over the summer months, and everything is dry tinderbox. And so uh, when the wind starts blowing, we all start getting extremely nervous because we know what that means. It could blow down power lines, which could spark and ignite fires. And if you have wind, those fires will spread very, very rapidly. And that's precisely what happened. So we went home that evening and uh, it was a little kind of a on edge evening to say the least. You're always sniffing the air. This is a California experience. You're always sniffing the air to see if you smell smoke. And I wasn't smelling smoke, but I had to close the windows anyway because it was just too much racket. I've never seen that kind of wind blow in Santa Rosa in 30 years that I've lived there. And so uh, my wife went to bed, and I went to bed, and I was laying there, uh, not sleeping, because I could hear the wind whipping outside. We have four big redwood trees in our backyard, and I could hear those things just swaying. And I was fearful that I might lose the roof or something when our phone rang, our landline. Rain, rain rung at midnight. And so uh, when the landline rings for a pastor at that hour, it's never a good thing. And so I picked it up, answered it, and it was my son. He's a police officer who works in a community about 25 minutes from where we live. And he lives just a block away from us. He's married, has two of our grandchildren. And uh, to my absolute uh, amazement, he said, Dad, you need to get Mom, and you need to get out ASAP. I've called Jennifer, and she's packed the kids in the car. She has packed, you know, whatever she can in the car. When you and Mom get ready to leave, can you go over and see how they're doing? And then just drive out here to Sebastopol. It's about 20 minutes away uh, west. It's near the ocean. And uh, I said, okay, I, I'll do it. And he was mentioning roads that run right by the church and run right by our house. And he said, there is a raging wildfire. It's coming over the ridge into the valley in East Santa Rosa, right where you guys live. And the the days that followed, frankly, are a blur. Because uh, we threw a bunch of stuff in the car, took the pictures off the wall, uh, grabbed all of the important papers. And and I got a call at 12. Everybody else throughout the community, they didn't get a wake-up call until some neighbor pounded down the door at about 1.15, 2 o'clock. I called my brother-in-law and said, are you guys up? He said, we're up. Johnny came over and got us up. That's their son. He said, we're getting out of here as fast as we can. So I said, okay, uh, Lori and I are leaving now. We're heading out to Sebastopol. We're going to be out there with the kids. 
So as I started processing what's going on, um, there are a bunch of words that were used by me during the course of those weeks and days which followed, and words that I heard others using because this was an unprecedented tragedy and destruction. It's always burning in California in the summertime, but it's burning someplace other than where you live, except this time it was burning where I live. And um, here are some words that I just thought I'd share with you. I kind of shared this message with the congregation um, about the second week. I went through three sermons, and I, I linked them all together, and they were messages that I wanted to hopefully encourage them with, just to help them understand what was going on. And there were some words that just came to mind. Fear was one that was prevalent, obviously. Questions like, what's next? You know, is it over yet? I mean, the fire was relentless. There were 14 fires burning, and it was like they were just chasing us. We were evacuated twice from our home. And uh, there would be anger. There's always anger at a time like this because people ask this question, why would a loving God allow such catastrophe? Why would he allow such tragedy? I said to the congregation, maybe a better question is, why doesn't he allow it more often, given who we are as sinners? Bitter and sweet, two words that I heard. Bitter because lives, homes, businesses, and possessions were all lost by thousands of people. Sweet because several thousand more, their lives and homes and businesses and possessions were all still safe. And then there was guilt. You know, in times of war, it's called survivor guilt. I get to go home, but my buddy died on the battlefield. Well, there was survivor guilt because people would say, my home survived, but why didn't my neighbors? And you start feeling guilty about that. And then... The word apocalyptic. You saw the picture of Coffee Park. It looked like a scene at the end of World War II when we firebombed Berlin or Nagasaki or Hiroshima. It was so devastated. A community incinerated. A fiery holocaust. Looked like the end of the world, frankly. And then the word surreal. Surreal means strange and dreamlike, or as I said to the congregation, maybe a better word is nightmarish as to what we're going through here. And the reason I said that is because there were just some bizarre things. For instance, the blood red sun shining through the smoky amber skies, yet at the same time, we stayed at our daughter's place because it was safe. And as I'm looking out the window, as I'm looking at that sky, which you saw there, that amber sky with the sun trying to break through, up comes the mail carrier to our walk and very normal and nonchalantly puts the mail in and moves down the sidewalk and moves on to the next house. It was just weird. Or as I'm sitting there, multiple sirens I hear in the distance, and yet I look down the block and here's FedEx dropping off packages, and I look down the other way, there was a UPS truck dropping off packages at homes in this neighborhood while the fires are raging around us. And then... There was the roar and the rumble rumble overhead of the fire bombers and the helicopters. And yet, across the street from my daughter's place, there's a gardener. And he's cutting the lawn. He's blowing off the walks. He's doing a little pruning and hops in his little truck and drives off. And I'm thinking, this is just bizarre. This is so weird. We're kind of burning up here. We don't even know who's alive and whose homes have survived. Overwhelmed. Overwhelmed. Um, I was mentally processing all at once how I was going to care for my wife, 
I kept her by my side for two weeks. No matter where I went, she went. There was no way I was going to let her out of my sight. I said, where I go, you go. And so she was with me for that entire time. I was processing as well my family. Two of my children with their families live in Santa Rosa. And then we have a church of uh, eight to 900 people. And so I'm thinking about my church family. Who's lost their home? Who are still alive? What's happening? Is the church still there? That moves me to the final word that I was dealing with, uncertainty. I, I didn't know if I'd come back to my home. Honestly, I thought I'd come back and it'd be all gone. I didn't know if I was coming back to the church property. I thought it would all be gone. I wondered if I was prepared to model for the church God's grace in dealing with such loss. And would I be prepared to say to them, you know, I have taught you as your pastor for the past 30 years how to live life, but am I prepared to show you how to live that life? You know, the verse that kept coming to mind as I'm driving out to Sebastopol and I'm driving through ash, it's going by me, and I'm, I'm going, it looks like uh, snow flurries. I couldn't believe it. I, I said, this is, this is unreal. And I'm processing, will my home be there? Will the church be there? And the verse that jumped to mind was the verse from Job chapter 1. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And it says in Job, worship. And I said, Chris, are you going to be able to do this? So these were just some of the emotions, some of the thoughts that were going on. And I challenged the church. Uh, week one, I said, look up. And in the midst of such devastating circumstances, you've got to look up for your hope. You, you've got to understand that your God is still here. And he's provided his word and he's provided his people. And he's provided our prayers for just such a time like this. In the third week, I challenged them with let go. Let go of your worry and trust God who cares and knows your every need. And then in between, I shared with them, listen up. And those are some of the things I'd like to share with you this morning. Listen up in desperate and painful times. We need to not only remember who God is, but we must listen to his infinitely wise counsel as it's revealed to us in this book. I mean, either God is God or he's not. And either this book is the word of God or it's not. And God either says what he means or he doesn't. And in a crisis of that nature, you just have to absolutely throw yourself on the mercy of God and say, God, it's you and me. And God kind of says back to us through his word, I've got this. I've got this, trust me. And that's the challenge I shared with the congregation. You remember what James said in the book of James, the first chapter? He said, don't just be hearers of the word. You know, Bible churches, we're great ingesters of the word. We take it in and we file it up here in our memory banks. And we know a lot about the Bible, but do we live it? Does it impact us? Does it transform us? Does it change us? And this became a time for us as a congregation to really process that because we didn't want to just be hearers of the word. We wanted to be doers of it. And so I shared with them just from a variety of passages. They were passages they were familiar with. They'd heard me preach on these before. They'd heard me teach these. But as Peter wrote to those Christians who were suffering throughout Asia Minor, what we know today is Turkey, in Second Peter, he said, I'm just reminding you some things of some things that you've heard at other times. But I want to stir your thinking so you'll call these things to remembrance as you suffer, as you go through these difficult times. And so that was kind of what I was doing. And I began with Matthew chapter 6. And in Matthew chapter 6, we have some very familiar words from Jesus. 
So let me just take you there for a moment and just read, um, not the whole section, I'm just going to skip through it and note a few verses where Jesus says the very same thing over and over and over as he's trying to comfort and encourage his disciples because they were worrying about all kinds of things. They were worrying about how long they were going to live. They were worrying about their next meal. They were worrying about all kinds of material needs. Look at verse 25. This is Matthew 6. For this reason, this is our Lord speaking, for this reason I say to you, here it comes, do not be worried about your life as to what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And then if you skip over uh, to uh, verse 31, he again gives this admonition to them. Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for nothing? I mean, imagine being one of those people who lost your home. You've lost everything. You've lost your cars. You've lost every earthly possession you have. I mean everything. My brother-in-law, about two or three days later, he was sitting on the couch of his son's house, and he, he looked at his nails and said, I need to clip my nails. And then it dawned on him, I don't have a nail clipper. <laughs> I don't have anything, because everything is gone. These words can be very encouraging. Jesus says, don't worry. Don't worry about it. And then he goes on in the 34th verse and kind of wraps it up by saying, so don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So what was Jesus saying there to those people? What was I endeavoring to say to my congregation? And maybe to you this morning, I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know where you're at, your marriage, your family, your job, your health. But I know this, Jesus is saying, don't worry. And he says, don't worry for two reasons. Number one, your heavenly father cares for you. And number two, your heavenly father knows about your need. And then he concludes in that last verse there by giving us some practical counsels. He says, you know, listen, tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Corey Tinboom, do you know that name? Of, uh, the hiding place fame. She wrote this. Let me read it to you. Worrying is carrying tomorrow's load with today's strength. Carrying two days at once. It is moving into tomorrow ahead of time. Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. That's good counsel, and it's counsel based upon the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 6. The other thing Jesus said there was, you know, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will take care of itself, right? You probably know this name, Elizabeth Elliot. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot was married to a missionary by the name of Jim Elliot. They were missionaries to the Alca Indians in Ecuador. You know the story of how the five were martyred in the mid-1950s. So she is a young wife. She's a young mother. They had a little baby at the time. And she, le- she loses that husband. She stays there and ministers for a period of time. And then she remarries another man. And then shortly thereafter, that man uh, dies. And then she remarries a while later. And shortly thereafter, that gentleman dies. And so people kept asking her, how do you deal with that kind of tragedy? How do you deal with that kind of devastation? How do you deal with that kind of trial, that tribulation? And she gave some incredible advice. She had heard a poem once, and in that poem there was one particular line 
that she said, I have clung to at each of those moments of crisis. And this is what the line says. Just do the next thing. Just do the next thing. I mean, as you can imagine, these folks are thinking, whoa, my house is gone. What do I do next? What do I do next? And I had several come up to me after I preached the sermon. They said, Pastor, you couldn't have said anything more relevant for me today than just that word of advice. Just do the next thing. Because as you start to look at that laundry list of all the things you have to do in a crisis like that, you can be so overwhelmed that it's absolutely paralyzing. Absolutely paralyzing. Just do the next thing. I think of another passage that I shared with them, and it's found in Luke chapter 13. This is an interesting passage, Luke chapter 13. And in Luke chapter 13, we have Jesus having a conversation with some people, and what prompts the conversation is some kind of catastrophic event that had happened. Now on the same occasion, this is verse 1 of Luke 13, now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him, that is to Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, well, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then he brings up a situation he had heard of. He said, or do you suppose those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam, this is in Jerusalem, fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It's a real interesting passage of scripture because what Jesus is doing here, he's not answering the question, why would something like that happen? Nor is he even addressing this issue that was predominant in the thinking of the day, which was this. Anytime a bad thing happens to a person, surely that person must have been a gigantic sinner, and that's God squashing them. That's God judging them. That's kind of the mindset. That was a prevailing mindset. In ancient times in Judaism, it was a prevailing mindset. At this time, that's why they bring up this issue. They must have really been bad, those Galileans. And Jesus says, well, listen, you could perish just as quickly My question for you is, have you repented? His point is a simple one. Calamity is an opportune time for everyone to ask the question, am I ready to meet my maker? Do I know the Lord Jesus Christ? Have I embraced the gospel, the redemptive message? Christ died for my sins. He rose from the dead, proving it was the son of God, proving that God justice was satisfied. Have I embraced that? Am I resting in that completely and totally to save me? We've had some wonderful gospel opportunities that the Lord has presented out of this horrible catastrophe. One lady in particular I can illustrate with this morning, she is the daughter, excuse me, she is the mother-in-law of a woman who comes to our church. She's one of our preschool teachers. And uh, she lost her home in a nearby community called Kenwood. And ever since the fire, she's been coming to church every Sunday with her daughter-in-law. I don't know that she's trusted Christ yet, but she's there every Sunday. That would go back five or six months ago. And just last Sunday, as she was going out, she addressed me as pastor. She said, Pastor Chris, I want you to know that that was a great sermon this morning. I believe God is doing something in her life. I'm praying and hoping that she will come to know Christ soon 
And this opportunity would never have happened had this catastrophe not occurred. But she's a woman who's processing the right question. The right question isn't, why did you do this, God? The right question is, do I understand I need a relationship with you? And have I made that sure by putting my faith in Christ? That's the issue. Over in 1 Corinthians 13, we have another very, very familiar verse from the Bible that I want to point out to you as I shared it with the congregation. It's 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13. I'll read the verse and then I'll just unpack it here. It says, No temptation or trial has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And then our theme this morning through our songs, I love the choice of music this morning, God is faithful. Boy, if you don't get anything else out of my message this morning, just take that with you. God is faithful. God is reliable. God is dependable. I can lean on him. I can trust him. And as uh, Pastor Van shared earlier, that verse where Paul challenged Timothy, you know, even though we're faithless, God remains faithful. And that is because, not because he chooses to be faithful, it is because in his very nature and in his very essence, he is faithful. And therefore, he says... No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted or tried beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you may be able to endure it. A lot of people don't mis- they misunderstand this verse. They think that this verse is teaching that God will lift me out of my circumstance. He'll send some kind of rescue helicopter and he will pull me out and then put me in an entirely different situation which is safer and kinder and gentler to me. That's not what this verse is saying. The verse is saying the way of escape is the last phrase. He is so faithful that he'll make you able to endure it. As you go through it, the grace of God is unleashed. And it manifests itself in how you handle that circumstance. And so as the world looks in, they see the grace of God manifested in your life and how you're handling the fact that your house just burned down. My brother-in-law was interviewed by ABC television, and it played all over the country. The ABC affiliates across the country picked it up because the reporter from ABC, KGO, down in San Francisco, he was interviewing him. My brother-in-law is looking at the house. His house is basically all burned down now. And uh, he is being interviewed by the reporter. And the reporter is asking him, you know, questions about, you know, well, how do you feel? And, you know, what are you going to do next? And, you know, God bless him. He just said, well, you know what? We can always rebuild a house. My wife and I are safe. We were able to take our dog with us. And we have insurance. And we're going to get through this. And he kept saying... This is an amazing man. This is an amazing man. And he he kept shoving that microphone in his face. This is an amazing man. How are you going to do this? And he just kept talking about, I'm going to trust that God's going to give me the grace to get through this. That's opportunity that we don't normally get in day-to-day life. To witness to those around us who don't know Jesus. So as we undergo trials, God can be counted on for help to prevent our circumstances from overwhelming us, burying us, and submerging us. I shared that with them that morning. And maybe that's a word of encouragement for you this morning. And then one last thing I would share with you this morning is found in 2 Corinthians. If you just turn to the next book, 2 Corinthians, go to chapter 12. Again, familiar words, familiar words. You know the story here. The Apostle Paul was caught up into the third heaven. He had this glorious revelation. He returns to the earth. And God, to keep him humble... 
has afflicted him with what he calls a thorn in the flesh. And we don't know if it's a person. We don't know if it's uh, some catastrophic disease, chronic disease, some medical issue he had to deal with. Some suggest his vision. Some suggested he had chronic dysentery or maybe malaria. We don't know. The point is, it was given to him and he didn't like it. He didn't like the circumstance, and so he prayed. He prayed three times, Lord, take it away. Lord, take it away. Lord, please take it away. But the Lord Jesus came back with these words. Verse 9. Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. So Paul concludes in the next phrase, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses To what extent? To what end? So that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, distresses, and persecutions, and difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. Because he was not depending upon himself. He was depending upon the power of the grace of God. And I shared that with the congregation Because the Lord Jesus promises supernatural strength to do what is humanly impossible. Standing at the street side, looking at your house burned to the ground, and all you can see is just the stone chimney standing there. You need God's immeasurable grace to know what to do next. And how to deal with that kind of loss. A.W. Tozer said, God does his deepest work in our darkest Ours, And he indeed does. Deuteronomy 33.25, it says, As your days shall your strength be. That's a great verse. Because what he's teaching us there is that I'm promising the necessary enablement for each day's unique needs, Chris. What does Philippians 4.13 say? I can do some things through Christ who strengthens me. Is that what that says? No, it says this, I can do most stuff through Christ who strengthens me. Is that what it says? No, you know what it says, so you say it with me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that was my challenge to them. Trust him. I believe it was in Luke one thirty-seven that... Uh, the angel came and announced to Mary she was going to conceive as a virgin and have a baby. And Mary knew basic biology and she said, well, this is, a, this is interesting because I've never been with a man. And so the angel said to her something that had to encourage her. Well, don't worry about it because with God, all things are possible. And what he did there, that angel was assuring her of the fact that there's no obstacle too big for the omnipotence of God. No obstacle too big for God's omnipotence. And those were some of the thoughts that I shared with my congregation, hoping that they would be encouraged. I mean, it all began with the week following. We couldn't even meet in our own church facility. We had to find another facility that we could meet in because our area was still evacuated. But uh, there was a wonderful church that opened up their facility after their own so that we could move in there and meet for our purposes And that Sunday, I told them, we need to look up. We need to look up and remind remind ourselves our hope is up there. It's in this eternal God whom we have been reconciled with through the work, the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. 
His death and his resurrection and our trusting and resting in that has redeemed us. And now we're right with him. And now we can call him Abba, Father. Though he is our Father in heaven. I love the fact he is in heaven. He's awesome. He's big. He's exalted. He's a cut above us in every respect. He's otherly. But I can call him Abba. The equivalent of Papa. That's how intimate we can be with him. And my challenge to them was, look up. He's provided his word, his people, and our prayers for this difficult time. And then I said, let go. Let go of your worry and trust God. And then I finally said, listen up. Heed his counsel. And I don't know where you are this morning, but know this. In desperate and painful times, we need not to only remember who our God is. But we must then listen to his infinitely wise counsel. I'll leave you with these words from one of the most famous preachers of all time. Late uh, 1800s, his name was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He was called the Prince of Preachers. He said, God is too good to be unkind. And he's too wise to be mistaken. So when you can't trace his hand, learn to trust his heart. Trust him this morning. May God bless you.